Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. <clears throat> wow, a lot of people here tonight. All right. All right. I was born defiant. My mom tells this story when I was about three or four years old. I picked up this glass ashtray and I held it over my head like this. And she looked at me and said, Stephen Edward Eggerts, if you throw that ashtray on the ground, you are going to be in serious trouble. And I looked her in the eye and I looked at the ashtray and I looked her in the eye and I smashed it into the ground. So from as far back as I can remember, consequences for my behavior were not a deterrent for my behavior. So when I was a junior in high school in Southern California, the pyramid scandals were going around Southern California. And for those of you who don't know about the pyramid scandals, it's a pyramid. There's 32 squares on the bottom, 16 squares, 8, 4, 2, 1. You put $1,000 in at the bottom, and then you have to find as many other people who want to participate in this illegal activity to put $1,000 in underneath you. And as you get pushed up to the top, when you get to the top, you get $16,000. So myself and two of my friends scrounged up 1000 bucks, and we drove to the pyramid party in my mom's Cadillac Seville. We were supposed to be 18 years old to be at these parties. We were 16. It was one of these things where you had to be there at a very specific time. They locked the doors at 8 o'clock. No one was allowed in or out. Everyone left the party at the same time, and they made this big announcement at the party about if there's anybody here for law enforcement, you need to leave. And I always thought, <laughs> what idiot's going to be there go, oh, yeah, I'm in law enforcement, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were there making money too, man. They don't make any money. Um, <clears throat> so we put our $1,000 in, and two weeks later, we walked out of that house with $16,000. And as we're driving home that night, I look in the back seat, my friend Kurt, and I ask Kurt, I go, what are you going to do with your money? And he says, well, I'm going to go to Mexico this summer, and I'm going to build a schoolhouse for the poor kids down there. And Ken and I look at each other, and we're in the front seat, and we're like, that's ridiculous. I mean, it is prom season. We have huge plans for our money. We are buying a bag of cocaine and limousines. <laughs> Screw the poor kids. We are partying. So we blew through that money in about three weeks. So you can probably tell by now that I did not graduate valedictorian from my high school class. So when I graduated from high school, I had very limited choices because of the bad choices I had been making while I was in high school. And so I made the decision to join the United States Navy. Now, I'll tell you two things about my childhood that will probably give you a real good indication of how well my naval career went. I quit the Boy Scouts because I hated wearing the uniform. <laughs> and I absolutely hated to be told what to do. <laughs> so it made perfect sense for me to join the Navy. So the first year and a half in the Navy, I was stationed in Virginia Beach in a small base called Damnick, Virginia. 
<clears throat> and I had a great time. It was like I had this regular job. I would go to the base at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'd get off at 4. I lived off base because there wasn't enough housing on the base. Uh, and I lived in a condominium about two blocks off the ocean with some other guys that were stationed there. It was awesome. But at the end of the year and a half, the Navy decided that it was probably time for me to go to a ship since I was in the Navy. And so the ship that I was going to was going to be off the coast of Singapore in two weeks. And so they flew a bunch of us to this little island called Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Now, to call it an island is a stretch. It's really like a big rock. It's, it's literally 12 square miles. It's about four miles long and three miles wide. And its sole purpose is to supply ships that are in the Indian Ocean. So we landed there at nighttime, and they shuffled us into this room, and they told us the rules about being on the island. And two of the rules were, one, you're not to hang out in the ocean because it's dangerous. There's poisonous fish and sharks. Uh, just don't hang out in there. And two, do not hang out outside too long because we're only one degree off the equator. So in the morning when the sun comes up, it just kind of comes up like this, and this basically just goes straight across the island. <laughs> There's really no arc to the, to the sun at all there. So they didn't want you to, you know, burn yourself up. So, of course, I wake up in the morning, and, uh, you know, I'm from Southern California. I grew up on the beach, and I see the most amazing turquoise water I've ever seen in my life. And remember, I don't like being told what to do. So I hang out in the ocean for about an hour, an hour and a half. And that night... I end up in the hospital with sun poisoning. I have burned myself. I am sick. I am throwing up. I am on IV so that they can, you know, keep fluids inside of me. The next morning, this officer comes to my bedside and says, Petty Officer Eggerts, you need to get up and report to your duty station for the day. I'm like, I, can, I am so sick. There's just no way I can do that. He says... If you do not report to your duty station, I'm going to write you up for destruction of government property. Like, destruction of government property? He goes, yes, the United States Navy owns you. Therefore, we own your body. You have destroyed your body, <laughs> so we will write you up for destruction of government property. Now, I haven't even made it to the ship yet. And I already know this is not going to be a good three years. Not a good three years at all. So without going into all the gory details of the next three years, I will tell you that I went AWOL from the United States Navy on four separate occasions over the next three years. I would get fed up with what was going on, and I would just leave. One time I left for just over six months, and I was on the run from the United States government, although they weren't really chasing me, but I was on the run from the United States government. And I went from San Diego to Texas to Florida up to Virginia Beach. And as I was driving back to San Diego, uh, my little adventure ended in El Paso, Texas, where I turned myself in because I ran out of money and lies, basically, at that point. So. I eventually got kicked out of the Navy, and when I got kicked out of the Navy, I was up in Seattle, Washington, on a ship that was in dry dock up there. And I came down to Portland for the first time, and within a matter of about three weeks' time, I got arrested for the first time in my life. 
in Portland. And as I was sitting in jail in the middle of the night with about 20 other people in a jail cell, I was asking myself, how did a kid from Laguna Niguel, California, end up in a jail in Portland, Oregon at the age of 22 years old? And I didn't really have an answer. I, I knew that obviously I'd been making some bad choices, and I also knew that this, house, this house was not how I was raised at all. This is not what my parents' dream was for me, was to end up in jail in Portland, Oregon. They let me out of jail about five o'clock in the morning, and I walked from downtown Portland to where I was staying, where I got arrested. I was staying at the Cameo Motel. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Portland, Oregon, the Cameo Motel is not a five-star resort. It's on the corner of 82nd and Sandy. Nothing good happens at the corner of 82nd and Sandy. It is still there. I drive by it often. So I grab my belongings, which at that point, all of my belongings fit into a Nike plastic bag. And I walk down the street to this convenience store, and I put a dime in a payphone, and I called my dad. This isn't the first time I had called my dad to ask for help. But this was the first time I called my dad and told him that I was suicidal, that <clears throat> my life sucked. I had no idea how I ended up in this place. I had just been arrested. I had been kicked out of the Navy. My life just seemed completely unmanageable. But I thought that if he could just send me some money, that I could get my shit together maybe and I, everything would be okay. And he listened. And then he said to me, first of all, we're not sending you money. We're done doing that. Second of all, have you ever thought that drugs and alcohol might be the reason you are where you are in your life right now? And I thought about that. And I thought, no. I mean, I, like, <laughs> that makes no sense to me. Zero sense. I could not connect the dots. And as the conversation went on, I asked myself, if I was on trial right now and they were trying to convict me of being an alcoholic and a drug addict, is there enough evidence to prove their case? And the answer was yes. I had started drinking and using at the age of 13 and I had given up a promising tennis career. I had been kicked out of the military. Every bad decision I had ever made in my life revolved around drinking and drugs. Every single one of them. <clears throat> now, something happened during that conversation because I ended up in treatment for the first time two days after that phone call. And when I was in treatment, my therapist had this poster on his wall. And when I'd go in to sit down and talk to him, this poster would sit behind him. And the poster said, the truth will set you free, but in the beginning, it's gonna hurt like hell. Now, I can't imagine what that phone call was like for my dad. When I hung up that phone, he had no idea if I was gonna kill myself or not. But I do know that he told me the truth about my life and it did hurt like hell for a while. But eventually, that truth set me free. And for that, I'm eternally grateful.